From the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. The Craig Needles Podcast, the Friday Roundtable here at ClassicRock981.com, LondonNewsToday.ca, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for listening to, downloading, and subscribing to the Craig Needles Podcast. And I am joined here in the studio this morning by activist Moshe Cox, Jennifer Dunn, the Executive Director of the London Abuse Women's Centre, and Elizabeth Peloza, the Budget Chair for the City of London. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Hello. 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 There's lots to get to. I, I do want to start with uh, the State of the City address that the, the mayor did earlier this week, and it was well received uh, to, to what I saw, and the mayor joined us on, on Classic Rock 98.1 this morning, and, and we chatted about it a little bit, and uh, there's a lot of things in there that I, that I liked. Uh, uh, Elizabeth, obviously, uh, a lot of the discussion in there was budget-related and related to items that uh, are, are, of course, before London City Council. Uh, what was your takeaways from uh, what the mayor had to say uh, yesterday to the entire city and to, to you and your colleagues? Um, I guess being the budget chair, I'm, I'm used to extra meetings with the mayor and budget <laughs> talks. So this has been my life since the summer, as that's when we really start putting together with staff. Um, for me, this is a multi-year budget. It's a four-year plan about ideally where we're going. We have a strategic plan that we're funding things in it that matters uh, to Londoners. I'm looking forward to the process. It kicks off with a public participation meeting on Monday night. And then we get into the um, hearing what the mayor's going to propose as the mayor's budget on Tuesday morning. Um, that'll be the first time we actually start discussing his budget, realizing what's before us out there in the public right now is the administratively prepared budget as directed by council. So waiting to see what the mayor's budget contains, doesn't contain, and what perhaps he's put in it that he's maybe scaled to some degree or another or pushed out in the budget or brought forward in the budget. Yeah, because he said right in the midst of the of the conversation, hey, there are some things that people are wanting us to fund, even people in this room want us to fund, that we're not going to be able to do. And I, I think that was right as far as setting the expectation of what's going to happen and what's not going to happen, because there are a lot of business cases in front of you. It'd be great to do all of them. I just don't think it's feasible to put that all in the property tax base at once. It is a lot. Uh, You'd be looking over a 13% increase in the first year alone. Um, There's 87 business cases, and it really is the needs to have versus wants to have, but realizing everyone views things differently of what do I actually need, depending on where you are in life, what opportunities you have available to you and your income, like what you need and what you want are very different things. Mojde, what were your takeaways from it? I unfortunately did not make it to the event this year, unfortunately, but I did read uh, and hear about the recaps and the summaries. I would have liked to see, although this was, you know, ironically, this is a fundraising event for the chamber, but very little was said about small businesses and and what is our plan in revitalizing small and medium-sized businesses, which is a great heap of, 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 of the local economy. Secondly, you know, we talked about housing as it relates to roofs over heads, which is essential and imperative. But I think we've had several conversations at this table around the additional wraparound supports. I know that some of this, you know, leaks into provincial jurisdiction around uh, addressing the opioid crisis. But we've had a devastating crisis here in the lack of mental health and addictions resources. I'd like to have us 
at least make a commitment to advocating more for those resources to be a part of our housing plan so that we can keep people housed. We're not um, checking things off of lists. Um, what else? I mean, less less focus on uh, the police budget would have been great at that in that mm-hmm. venue. Although I do understand that there needs to be deep collaboration between the city and the police um, because of the disparities faced by nonprofits help, helping the most vulnerable in the city. It's it's really hard to to direct my focus on the police when when we know there are good agencies on the ground doing the best they can with very little and they could uh, do a lot more if they had even a remote fraction of the considerations given to the police budget. Yeah, that's one, and we've talked about that on this show before as well. Uh, I, I think that there would be great solutions to the police budget. You wouldn't have to hire as many people if you had other services that were able to help people who were having significant mental health crises, or crises rather, because that way you could send other officers to do other things that are not mental health related. However, that's a whole kettle of fish with the province. It, it, it's it's complicated. I get why they're they're in a tough spot on that one. Jen, what was your takeaway? Um. So I I was there and um, honored to honored to be there. I um, was really happy to see the story that he brought forward from um, a young person with lived experience of homelessness um, and had a video with with that young person and um, you know some service providers as well to talk about the the impacts of that and the hub work and all of that stuff. I I, I like that and I always think. You know, with with the voice of of that young person coming forward, um, it's helpful for that demographic of people that attended that event to see those stories. Um, so I thought that was really impactful. Um, I have to ad- admit that as we were, as I was sitting there and it was going through, you know, homelessness, police budget, sports, music. I forget. I forget what else now. Yeah. Um, I was like, hmm when are we going to talk about the safety for women and girls in the community and anti-oppression and anti-racism? And he did get to it. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, that he did um, because I feel like there would have been a huge (laughs) loss if, if he hadn't. And I think we need to remember that, um, you know, you can't talk about housing and homelessness without putting, um, you know, a lens of violence against women on it and a lens of, of anti-oppression, anti-racism. And so I feel like that might have been missed a little bit. Um, but other than that, I think, I think honestly, for the demographic of this event and the type of people that attend this event, the way that he went about it with a, with a huge piece of, of the homeless, homelessness and, and housing and, and that, you know, that was important for him to do. Yeah, I, there, I, I, what I really liked to, to hear about was the idea, and, and I want to ask you about this, Elizabeth, of retrofitting commercial uh, commercial buildings into residential, and, and and the city helping with that, and the idea of hey, let's build some more stuff on surface level parking lots in the downtown core, which also sounds like a good idea. So what what's the step? How's that going to to make its way through City Hall, as far as you know? Yeah, I'll just say the video with Erica, uh, who was featured in it, was so impactful of the work that we're doing for homelessness who it affects and why we need to keep going with it why it's so important as we look at the housing continuum and refurbishing potentially those not everyone's going to be interested as a developer in this partnership but and not building every building is going to be a good fit for it but realizing we have a 30 percent vacancy downtown and if those people and those buildings 
are revitalized and it's more residents downtown to support the restaurants and the businesses um, realizing everything's changed since the pandemic. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing who comes forward and if it will get traction um, as those are buildings that are already there and it's it's an infill of residential going back in it stops me from having a sprawl as for municipal parking lots i'll also say that the city has a parking strategy and we have some parking lots downtown that we've deemed temporary but it's been decades that we're waiting for some developers to come forward with an application for that property and we just keep extending it as temporary for a few more years so i think there's a lot of opportunities for that Definitely putting parking underground. That way your streetscape is lit, walkable. You don't have these voids of dark spaces, cars, large vehicles, unlit. Every mm-hmm. time, but like safety and, and walking, you could get more, econo- there's more economic impact and a joy of living from walking by buildings and restaurants filled with people than just empty cars. Yeah, I've, I I agree with that entirely. And, and, and Moja, you and I have talked before, I know about the idea of we've got a lot of empty buildings in the core. And the way that people work has changed, the way that office dynamics have changed, we just simply don't need the commercial space, all of it, that we have right now. So, hey, let's see if we can change some of it in a place where people can live. Makes a ton of sense to me. I think uh, Mayor Josh Morgan is right on 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 point here with testing this idea out in London, especially with a case study of out west. We have you know in the prairies a a, a good running uh, time of of, of doing uh, this and and seeing some results. We one thing that gets me a little nervous about announcing something like this in such a way is that. You know, we we didn't talk about incentivizing what it looks like uh, when it's retrofitted and ready to be on the market as housing. What kind of housing is this? Is this uh, are we trying to bring um, you know middle class young professionals back downtown? Great, it's lovely to have them there. Uh, those are not the folks who are experiencing uh, being unhoused. Maybe right. they can't afford to leave their homes yet. <laughs> that could be something we could address by it. But I really would like it to be geared to um, people who need uh, housing most the most vulnerable, and maybe some you know agreements with uh, social housing with the city around social housing why aren't we talking about that and can we incentivize for developers to engage in that way and and also uh you know have some social contracts in place about what kind of housing this is going to be so i'm i think this is very promising that's why i didn't name it at the very front on my reflections because yeah. i knew this would be one of the, hit, the areas that we'd hit i think they're doing a great job in in, in thinking ahead in a good way uh, and not having um these these properties sit stagnant what i would have also liked to hear is how we're going to de-incentivize acquisition of properties downtown and do nothing with them so i know that farhi is is leading uh owner land you know he's been Mm -hmm. acquiring these uh these buildings and some uh, of them are sitting empty and and they have been and he's been doing that strategically and we've been allowing it to happen so i think that we need to speak about how do we de-incentivize the you know, acquisition of these properties and doing nothing with them. And I think that that is preventative measures. So all this is good news for us as, as long as we, we have some clarity and boundaries around what these properties are going to be retrofitted for uh, and, and as long as it's accessible to those who need affordable housing. Yeah, and I, I like to think, and I don't know if like to think is the, the, the way to phrase it, but if you're turning 
office space into residential space. I don't know how many homes you're going to be able to get into one office because you have to do new kitchens, new bathrooms, things along those lines. So I, I don't know if it's necessarily going to be something where all of a sudden hundreds of people can live in a place like this, but every little bit helps, Jen. Yeah, I think so. I think every every little bit helps and, and bringing, you know, um, the awareness of, of those types of things in this forum is is fantastic. The one thing that I that I did like, and I'm not going to be able to say this properly because I can't remember all of the details, <laughs> which is probably not helpful for That's you, fine. But, um, yeah, we'll figure so it out together. There was at the, um, so there, they were talking about a couple of developers coming together um, to renovate yeah. a former long-term, was it long-term care yep. facility yep. and turn that into um, housing with yep. wraparound support. That is fantastic yes. and that's the type of thing that that needs to happen too because you can't you can't just put somebody sorry you can't just put nope. somebody in a place and be like here you go roofs over your head right, right. Yeah, it's, so it's it, no some people you could just put them in a spot and say hey there's absolutely roof over your head. that's gonna make absolutely. all the difference in the world but there are other folks that that's just not going to be the way that it works out yep. for them yep. so uh there are four developers right and uh the, the city's part of it as well and just uh coming together and, and something that will will better the city having 40 of those spaces right elizabeth absolutely like every impact helps it's a great building being repurposed in a beautiful area um glad for this initiative and that's an opportunity where we have local builders and developers coming forward to say we're part of this community we want to make change and they were partners at the beginning and they're still showing up and they're showing real progress um i think there's other opportunities like that in town if people want to show up and absolutely we talk about like the housing spectrum of some people do just need a place that's affordable i'm good to go just get me in some people mm -hmm. need long term supports and wraparound supports and there's various business cases as well in the multi-year budget like one's a a head lease program of some people just need someone to vouch for them to get them on a lease to get them going like they're good mm -hmm. to go they just they have no credit maybe something happened they had a bad partner split they i was just going to say that's how that intersects with the violence against women lens and i'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you no, but no, that's you exactly always right i'm good like not that you always <laughs> interrupt you're always welcome I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. It's fine. let me uh clarify that and you know in that business case is underneath housing but it has intersectionalities and mm -hmm. those are just people who you know, maybe just need the helping on a lease. They don't have mm -hmm. family to help them. They're mm -hmm. on their own. They're trying to make the best. They might have kids. Like, and just, I just need someone to vouch for me and, and believe in me and give me hope. Yeah, and Jen, you've talked about this in the podcast before. People that come to Locke and say, hey, look, I'm in a, a bad situation here. And it's hard for them to get out of wherever they are because there's nowhere else for them to live. There's nowhere for them. There's nowhere for them to go. So, you know, they're choosing to stay with their abusive partner instead of because homelessness of is the alternative essentially yeah but and yeah. and all of there's so many different things like you know let's say if if the um partner was maybe the the primary person to bring money in mm -hmm. that person the the woman might not have money coming in have to take care of the children have to so many things well how are you going to find housing on top of that too when we're already in a crisis yeah you know it's 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 horrible so the better option this is, to stay with the abuser yeah so the more spaces that we have for yeah. people to go find a place to live the less likely it is that we find folks in that particular situation i'll also say i would like um more partners in the community who are post-secondary institutions like western just announced building residences for their students um as my kid is now a first-year student in uh waterloo i took great Comfort in knowing that they had gotten into residence their first year, there's support there for them, and then they can find their way in the community and people to mm -hmm. go and cohabitate and live with because that is an important part. And as I'm looking at 
Fanshawe and their great growth that they're seeing, and I'm hearing from their students, like we need residents. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of the housing continuum too. Yeah, uh, it absolutely is. And what Waterloo did, there's some neighborhoods around uh, the university that became essentially, you know, Fleming-like or Thurman Circle-like. <laughs> Uh, or Bruffdale, like, you know, pick a, pick one of the streets that's, that's infamously near our, our post-secondary institutions. And they bought up those family homes and then built over top of where they were significantly sized multi-person residences, you know, uh, mid-sized yep. housing, we'll call it. Cause so that way, there's more places for people who are going to the university to go. Uh, Western, as you said, they've announced a few new uh, projects, uh, projects rather, places for people to live. That's great. Fanshawe, I would like you to do that, please. Uh, that This is my suggestion to you. And hopefully that's something that can happen sooner rather than later because your student population is expanding and there just simply are not enough places around there for the students to live. So that's, that's my ask of you, Fanshawe College. Please heed my words. Uh, last thing on the State of the City before we wrap this uh, part of the conversation up, there, there was some talk about uh, about budget, as we said, and things we're going to be able to do, things we're not going to be able to do. Uh, the mayor sort of outlined what his priorities are. So how does his priorities and, and council priorities, Elizabeth, align with what you're able to put together as budget chair and the way that you're able to you know, have the document go out, uh, discuss the business cases, chair the meetings, things along those lines? How, how does that all work together is my question. Or does it not always work together? Uh, <laughs> I think people are used to you know, council sometimes being dysfunctional. So as my position um, in leadership on this, it's realizing it's the first time ever with strong mayor powers that we're doing a budget this way. Right. We are all in a new situation together that for me it's chairing as I always do with full transparency regards of the public participation meeting or council debates that you know exactly what's happening what outcome we're going for um, starting our meetings on time wrapping up and making sure that uh, I've been touching with various counselors realizing some of them are also first-term counselors and it's their mm-hmm. first time going through a multi-year budget whereas other ones are seasons and have done this multiple times that their questions are answered, that they feel supported, that they get their questions answered bef- ahead of time. And that when the conversation starts, everyone knows ideally what what they'd be okay with, either as a tax rate or per business cases that they feel supported. And they ideally come to the table with any amendments they might want. Just our, I would say our pinch point going into this is that we haven't seen the mayor's budget yet. So it's gonna be a quicker turnaround time into going into a public conversation. Yeah, uh, and that's uh, coming uh, early next month, so said the mayor uh, yesterday. Uh, another story that I want to have a conversation about, and this is going to be something that uh, has already brought and will bring significant national attention to London coming up in uh, a little over a week here. London police are going to be holding a news conference at their headquarters on February 5th, so not this coming Monday, but the following Monday, at which point uh, it is expected, according to reports in the Globe and Mail, they will announce the arrests of five members of the 2018 Canadian World Junior Championships hockey team. Now, I do not know that these five players are the five who are going to be arrested. However, what we do know is the following. 
Alex Formanton's team in Switzerland. And Alex Formanton has not been in the NHL for two years. He's been without a contract. They have granted him a leave of absence to return to Canada indefinite. Uh, Michael McLeod and Cal Foote of the New Jersey Devils have been granted indefinite leave of absences by that team. The Philadelphia Flyers have granted a leave of absence to Carter Hart, and Dylan Dubé of the Calgary Flames has also been granted a leave of absence. Again, I'm not going to sit here and say, I know that those are the five players who are going to be arrested. We're going to wait for London Police to make that announcement. However, it's hard not to look at that and say, hey, maybe this might be the way this is going to go here. It would be shocking if there was a coincidence here. And, and Jen, I, I wanted to ask you about this first, obviously, because a lot of this is uh, it, it intersects with the area that you work in. Uh, a lot of people say, hey, these cases take too long to, to work through the justice system, and they do. But there has been some movement here. So when you heard that, yeah, there are going to be some arrests here, how did you react to that news? I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I was happy about it <laughs> because I think it's time for men to be held accountable for their actions, right? I know all of these are allegations yeah. right now and all of that. I'm very clear We on also that. know that Hockey Canada paid this woman, I would assume not an insignificant sum of money when she said she was going to sue them about this. And the allegations in that lawsuit, horrific. Mm -hmm. Absolutely horrific what happened to this person. Absolutely. Again, not tested in court yet, but horrific yes. stuff in there. So I think, you know, our position at the London Abuse Women's Centre right now with where we sit with all of this new information that has come out is we're um, going to kind of hold back on, on formal comments until we hear um, what the police have to say on um, February 5th and then we'll we'll put something out and talk about it more, more formally. Um, you know, but just in a general sense, what I hope out of the community happens is that there are conversations around why those um, young men at the time felt like they were entitled to you know allegedly do something like this and why wasn't it caught sooner yeah. and, and 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 less focus on literally anything to do with the woman on the other side of it right, right? because <laughs> she needs to not be part of the conversation on why she didn't do this why she didn't do that why you know that needs to be out of it completely uh, the, the way that this works its way through the system obviously nothing's going to ever go as fast as the as how we want it to go but when someone says, hey, the justice system is very slow, uh, or in some cases doesn't at all assist women who have been, uh, who have been victimized in this way, uh, what, what's, as you're helping advocate for women in that situation, what's, what's mm -hmm. your advice to them, or, or how does that work from your perspective, and what can the justice system do differently? Again, this is just a general comment, not about this particular no, case. No, I understand. Yeah. So, you know, there are a ton of statistics out there that show us that, um, you know, the amount of sexual assault cases that are actually formally reported to police are are very under under counted with regards to how many sexual assaults and that sort of thing actually happen because women don't necessarily want to report to police because women are left to have to testify in court for example which could be very traumatic very triggering having to you know you know if it takes that amount of time for women to go through the the system let's say you know you've had this happen years later you're going to have to talk about it in court to prove that it actually happened to you it's not okay it's just not okay and there's a lot of women who are like you know what that's not worth it for me I'm going to get the 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 help that I need to get through this in another way um, so women will you know some women will choose to access service at an organization like ours and and, and maybe have one-on-one -on -one counseling or, or whatever that looks like for them um, instead of going 
that route. Um, and you know what? That's o- that's okay. That's okay. And it always will be okay for women to choose what their, um, you know, journey to justice looks like, right? For some women, that does mean reporting to police, and, and that's okay too. Um, but for things to take so long to go through the court system for those types of things, it's it's horrific. But the, the, the main point is having to rely on her testimony, right? I mean, yeah. we need to to believe that it's happened we need to believe women when they say that things like this has happened to them and that's a, a much bigger discussion to to have but you know that's where we are uh back to the the hockey canada situation elizabeth you're a, a hockey mom and this kind of sent uh shock waves through uh uh, hockey parents all over Canada when they're hearing about uh, Hockey Canada, you know, giving up money for, for lawsuit settlements. It's just, it was pretty horrifying stuff, obviously. So as, look, this is not close to ending, I don't think, but it's a significant piece of it happened this week. Uh, how does that impact the community sort of where this happened and the broader community we're talking about hockey in general? I honestly don't know how anyone's surprised anymore. Yeah. Um, which I hate to say, and especially, you know, as I as I age and realizing what we grew up with and how things have become not okay. Um, you know, and I have two sons, and I expect more from them, and, and they know my stance that I'm glad it's being discussed from the victim's angle, absolutely. Like, whenever anyone comes forward, the questions always tend to be, why were you there in the first place? What were you doing? Why didn't you report it? Mm-hmm. Six years is absolutely too long because that's trauma that people are living with, the family. And then I always look to, you know, not just London, but those incidences across the country that weren't reported mm-hmm. of how many people are either sitting there thinking, I feel bad, or, like, they relive their trauma because they had similar incidents. Then it's, you know, they never reported theirs for whatever reasons, like how much more is in the community that we don't know. And just to know that there is organizations throughout Canada, like Locke, that are there to serve. Like I've been speaking to so many women about other issues and I'm like, you know what, we have Locke. And they're like, I never knew there was someone to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know how at capacity Locke can be in other organizations that we're still not that conversation of it's okay not to be okay. It is okay, it wasn't your fault. Um, in whatever situation you might have had an occurrence like this. Like, those are been the basic communication conversations that still aren't happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mojde, this is clearly horrific, and we've talked about it from a few different angles here, but did, when as it works its way through the system, and we're talking about, obviously, five guys who, uh, whoever they are, they may not be the, the names of the guys who are on leave, but there are five hockey players here who would have gone had a lot of privilege and probably thought they were above the rules when something like this would occur. I dream of a world where a survivor of male violence is uh, valued more than when an issue like this arises, they're given more than an invitation to appear uh, and present themselves to the London police headquarters and that it would be taken more seriously with a deeper sense of urgency. We have the tools and resources across the nation to bring these men to justice and begin the process. It's been six years already. So I dream of a world where a, a survivor of male violence is actually deemed valued enough that it would garner from the police force more than an invitation to present themselves. 
So that's my immediate response because that is the most inequitable way of arresting people who assaulted a, in in a group. And I don't want to use really triggering words, but there, there's a there's language assigned to this, and this is as we see the details of this case roll out, we will we will be able to see see uh, more clearly what we should be calling this uh, sexual assault in a in a group setting like that in the city of London. So. That w- that's my initial reaction. I'd also like to see a little bit more conversation around all of the parties that are complicit to something like this happening. Mm-hmm. I think that um, as a community, we're complicit. We've had a community where we've had deep issues with sexual assaults that yes. were unfounded and, and the police is ill-equipped to, in fact, you know, d- do a wholesome uh, investigation in most cases, like unfounded. We want to track that a little bit better. And I know that we're making a shift. I did um, observe a, a police board meeting where they did speak to some statistics now. So I think that we're c- capturing data. We're being a little bit more transparent. And I'd like us to move in that uh, further in that direction. Uh, but the complicity, this is, th- there should be a whole of community response. Enough with women and girls uh, being assaulted or, you know, in a situation of violence at the hands of men and boys without engaging all parties. That involves tools and resources for parents. How do you talk to your children at home? We know that there is this deep bro culture, this toxic masculinity in the hockey culture in general. So from very early age, when we have our kids in these settings, we need tools and resources at home to have conversations with uh, with our kids. And we need to dismantle this culture at every angle. And I think it starts with more than an invitation to present themselves at London Police Headquarters. They've arrested people for less. Yeah. Uh, I am really interested to see how this goes. There's going to be a national media focus on London on the 5th. There's going to be reporters here from every news outlet, every sports outlet, the whole thing. Uh, it's it, it's not going to be an easy time for the city. And if there's a trial, one would presume that trial is going to be here in London. So that's going to be another high profile trial at the London Courthouse. So that's it's not how we want our city being presented. But at the very same time, what I would really like the most is for A, something like this to never happen, or B, if something like this is going to happen, the people who are the perpetrators are going to face justice for for perpetrating something like that. So uh, it's just, it's it's really, really hard, and I'm and it's going to be a difficult time, I think, for, for people who may have been victims in the past of, and, and other instances. The victim of, of this particular instance can be very hard for her as well. So uh, my, my thoughts are with people who are uh, who are in those situations because it's going to be uh, uh, probably an ugly, uh, an ugly couple of weeks starting early February, and then if there's a trial at some point, uh, that'll probably be pretty ugly too. So. Can I say one Please, thing? Please, of course. I think just to add to that, if anybody is listening to your podcast today and feels like they need to reach out for support that there is um, help available in the community you can call or google or whatever the london abused women center or anova um and and get the help you need now or when whenever you're ready that's great 211 online and over the phone yeah and you'll find a list of all of those resources thanks for that that's uh, a a good spot to leave that particular topic last thing i want to discuss is the kindergarten curriculum and doug ford the premier of ontario has said that uh we're gonna make some changes there 
I don't know if we necessarily need to make changes there. I get what they're looking at here. And uh, everyone in this room since uh, in the last few years has had kids go through the kindergarten system. I think the last time they changed the curriculum for kindergarten was 2005. So it's been a little bit. It's been 19 years. I'm not necessarily sure we need to go, you know, all out and changing the curriculum. Mojde, what did you think of of, of this conversation? Because this... I don't know if I trust this government to make big changes in education. That was my takeaway from it. And I second that. I, I don't, in, in, you know, broadly trust this government and particularly trust this minister whom I'm still trying to connect the credentials to the portfolio. Uh, so it's it's really hard to, you know, I, I, I don't mean to sound... Like exactly. that, I have higher exactly. standards. It's a really nice way to say yeah. it. No, we I need. Like, but. No, no, but this isn't me being snooty about this. I, I want to make it very clear. When I apply for a job, right, mm-hmm. or if anyone mm-hmm. applies for a job, mm-hmm. we have to show on our resumes why we qualify for that particular Here's job. Here's the experience so I, I have, have that a, means that I'll be able to do this. Absolutely, job well. yeah. mm-hmm. I have a higher standard for politicians because they're a paid well and they have their task to represent us in a democracy. So with with the minister pulling this out of literally nowhere, um, there's a few things that I agree with and there's a few things that I'm deeply concerned about. First of all, going back to the phonics and phonetic way of learning uh, to read and write and uh, picking up on literacy is, is, is archaic and outdated and is not the way. We have to listen to educators, uh, s- people who specialize in this area. Young children need to have stimulation and creativity. They have the rest of their lives to be put in straight rows, to be good uh, you know, consumers and great commodities themselves we are conforming children to live in a capitalistic environment starting from school and i feel like kindergarten is a space where we we should leave room for creativity and different learning and i know they had said that they're going to keep the play-based learning but i like you can't what are they going to do add more hours in a day they are saying full day kindergarten which i am for so out of that entire announcement the one thing i'd like to here is a little bit more you know qualifiers why this minister mm-hmm. uh, wants to do this and i know that they're saying in consultation leading into 2025 they're going to implement some curriculum changes the one thing is needed is yes we are lagging in literacy canada places itself pretty high in the oecd countries with respect to education but when we get more uh, immigrants coming into this country and, and giving their narratives they the the curriculum is actually quite behind most of the world quite frankly so when kids come here in grade two they're already doing a lot of things that that Canadian children are not even learning yet. Mm-hmm. So we, this is, first of all, we have to f- break free of this mentality that we are the sort of, we have a superior system. Yeah. We're the unassailable um, number one. That doesn't that yeah. hold up there. There are European countries, China, Japan, we're behind uh, some the of The Middle those. East, yep. Southeast yep. Asia, all of these places have more advanced curriculum because these children are coming here and their parents are like, we don't know what to, they're bored in class because they're sitting there doing things that are, you know, they did in kindergarten and, and that, you know, as they progress into lower elementary, it's not adequate. I do think there's this equitable element of full-day kindergarten and that exposure to the school system in a, in a more fair way, putting less strain on parents to be able to figure out what they're going to do with the rest of the half of the day is, is positive. I, I think we need to understand that children learn differently. What I would have loved to hear from this minister, if we're going to make any advance, uh, uh, investment in education at all, is to beef up uh, 
supports for for the most vulnerable children who learn differently. I think that when we go back to sort of the basics, it means taking the different approaches out and taking the creativity. We need critical thinking skills and creativity skills in these kids, um, especially when they're not socializing in the same way as previous generations. What do you think of the kindergarten curriculum where it's at right now, Elizabeth? I'm just a crispy parent. Um, (laughs) Well, please, (laughs) please define crispy parent. um, You know, I I supported past changes to the curriculum. This one, I raise concerns that it hasn't been consulted with the teachers and the teachers union, and they're going to make a plan, discuss the plan, implement it for this fall. um, But things aren't in place for in community consultations uh, with, in ed- with education and leaders haven't happened. Um, we're talking about, sometimes it's either like smoke and mirrors or look here while I'm really doing something over there. I still raise concerns <laughs> that our schools, they're not all adequately funded. They're not all air conditioned. Some of the schools have very affluent families and they have all the technological needs they need. Other schools, um, like, you know, in, in town where my kids used to go, their their IT budget funds like one computer replacement a year. Wow. In the computer room, I don't want to know what school it is, but Craig would know, that yeah. the computer room gets so hot, the kids couldn't actually go in to learn because they were old computers generating so much heat. Um, like, we have issues like these in our community, and then the community conversation goes to like, what do you think we'd tinker like with phonics? I'm like, how about these kids are not nourished, overheating, like not to mention how many behavioral issues can be in the classroom with no supports, IEPs aren't being followed. Like those are the real issues and those are ones I want to talk about. Yeah, I agree with the behavioral issues of lack of support is something that uh, I've encountered as my my kids have gone through the the school curriculum and and like you wind up having tough conversations with other parents and you you say to yourself like, okay, this is not a great situation educationally, obviously, but at the same time, like I'm, I'm less mad at the kid that's the problem than I am, of course, at the... The, the, the parents who have, well, par- parents, grownups, whoever's making decisions, who have kind of let things crumble the way that they have, it's, 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 it's a tough spot and puts families in a tough spot. Jen, do you have thoughts on that? I, I, I agree with both of the, um, you. I think, you know, <laughs> like, I'm like, what else do I add to this? Yeah. Because all of that is so great. But when you, you think like back to the basics, I think those words were used in, in some of the, the conversation around it. So to me, that would mean exactly that, like how to treat people properly so different types of learning styles um you know the the play-based learning in kindergarten i think is so important some of those kids have never been around other kids before and so all of that is is very important and when you're going into junior kindergarten some of those kids are as young as three starting who don't even have proper bathroom you know knowledge yet Like, what the heck are we even talking about? My, my daughter so, was three when she started kindergarten. Now yeah. She was able to mostly do that. But, yeah. uh, like, that's that's tough when you're three years old. So, like, so that's, that's I little. know. So yeah. why are we talking about fractions and phonics when yeah. there needs to be more resources for the educators who are actually in that room supporting those children and the school? Uh, my kid's school just got air conditioning last summer. So, you know, that's a, that's a huge piece. But... Teachers and educators are stretched so thin all of the time trying to, you know, make things work. And we we need 
so I think we need to look at that too. But I think, you know, I wanted, so I wanted to say two things. I think that even, you know, to add the conversation in around healthy relationships, we are seeing more and more issues as, as um, you know, kids get older. And, you know, I've been told, oh, well, don't worry, that's discussed in health class in grade seven. So don't worry. Okay, but, you know, they, you they opted start, out. Like, yeah, or you could really start having back to the basic conversations about how to treat someone kindly when you're three, right? You can. And so part of me too, I was wondering, and and maybe actually, you know, is does any of this also have to do with the COVID response? So I know my kids were of an age where they would have really been when, when COVID was, um, you know, I know that's, it's still a thing. I don't know what I'm trying to say. When the schools were shut down and all of that, my kids suffered with some of the, you know, needing extra support with reading and that sort of thing because they were in the grades at that point where they would have learned reading um, or how to read. So is part of this maybe a response with that? Like, I'm I'm trying to figure figure that out. Like, (laughs) kids are, like, maybe not reading now until they're in grade three and four. Well, to me, I'm like, well, wouldn't that be... A result of the pandemic more than what is needed to add to kindergarten i don't know if that's a good i don't question. know i mean if, if our minister was a little more qualified to make decisions on children's education profiles that would i would trust the direction that we're mm-hmm, going into mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a great question we have twins uh, similar ages we're a mm-hmm. big reading household and if we didn't press yeah i was in a situation where i could i could tell i could put them you know in scenarios where they're practicing their literacy uh, despite being pulled out of kindergarten uh, March break and then yeah. being homeschooled yeah. over a small Google you know Chromebook mm-hmm. for two years it's a different experience so um, yeah I, I I don't I don't even even the we're gonna go back to like phonics like I, I feel like I'm sorry, I but aren't like they actually already doing that though? Like, they no, they're 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 molding. I feel like ECEs and early educators are, and teachers in that group are are are. There's whole word methods. There's okay. sight words. There's different approaches, natural approaches to reading, whole language approach. They're using these methodologies now because they're the experts, and yeah. our yeah. minister is not, unfortunately. Right. So, like, you know, this party needs to get uh, take us a little more seriously. I think here in Ontario, and and really start to to prove that they can make decisions on our behalf. Yeah. Uh, again, I don't know if this is the group that I trust to do this, but this is going to be the group for at least the next uh, next couple of years here. So that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, we'll wrap up the roundtable there because we're uh, pressed against time for studio and a variety of other things. So thank you so much to Jen and Mojde and Elizabeth for doing the show with us this week. Of course, you can find the Craig Needles podcast at classicrock981.com, londonnewstoday.ca, and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you don't got a lot going on coming up this weekend, I may I suggest you go to the London Lightning basketball game on Saturday when it will be the Shine the Light uh, night at uh, the London Lightning game. Anything you want to add to that, Jen? Thanks for that plug, Craig. I can do that. I did it on the radio this morning. (laughs) Yeah, no, come out to the game, wear purple, show your support. It's always so great that the London Lightning do this year after year. And yeah, it's going to be a good time. So come on out. There you go. So that's Saturday at Budweiser Gardens. Have a great weekend. The Craig Needles Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. 